welcome to HMSC Connects, where we go behind the scenes of four Harvard museums to explore the connections between us, our big, beautiful world, and even what lies beyond. My name is Jennifer Berglund, part of the exhibits team here at the Harvard Museums of Science and Culture, and I'll be your host. I'm speaking with Anavis Vandenhoek, a retired Greek language professor at the Harvard Divinity School, who has been spending her retirement photographing and cataloging an assortment of objects housed in the collections of the Harvard Museum of the Ancient Near East. I wanted to explore the connections between her work at the Divinity School and the museum, and how her curiosity about religion and the ancient world led her to its material culture. Here she is. Anavis Vandenhoek, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You grew up in Holland in and after World War II and developed an interest in ancient languages, history, and the ancient world as a young woman, but went on to study theology. That led you into the clergy, both before and after completing your PhD. So describe how your work in the clergy and your classical studies overlap, and also how do they diverge? Honestly, they don't overlap (laughs) at all. (laughs) So at the university, one learns a lot of things, and I was always interested in history and languages, and that's why... Theology actually is a a very broad field. So when I became a minister, I was a part-time minister because I also had a family and I could not work full-time. Ended up in a small village. It was a Dutch Reformed uh, Calvinistic church. It's actually the most common church in Holland. Uh, So after the liberation from the Spanish, the Dutch didn't want to be Catholic per se, so they became Protestant. Ah. Uh, officially. So that's why everyone north of the rivers was more or less Dutch Reformed. Okay. But there also were other churches like Lutheran, Mennonite, and and Catholics, of course, there were also Catholics. Okay. But south of the rivers, it's mostly Catholic, or Ah. was. I think at the moment, only 30% of the Dutch are Christian at all. But anyway, when when you end up in a small village of 1,200 inhabitants, then Greek and Latin doesn't do very much for you. Moreover, there were three churches in that town and three schools. Mm -hmm. So it was very much segregated. And so the Dutch Reformed minister was for all the rest, so to speak. Of course, for preparing sermons, I always would look at the Greek text of New Testament and at the Hebrew Bible, at the Hebrew for the Hebrew Bible, and I would do that religiously actually for the first years. But otherwise, there is very little correspondence between my studies and reality. So, tell me a little bit more about your classical studies then. Uh, yeah, I was interested in ancient church history and what we call patristic studies, the studies of the church fathers. So the text, uh, it, it's a little bit a misnomer because there were also church mothers. But uh, So now you 
speak about late antiquity or so on. So I was interested in particularly how Christianity came into this so-called pagan world. Pagan is not is also not a good name, but in this Roman world, how how could it develop Roman and Greek world? And uh, so I, my main field became the authors of Alexandria, Clement and origin of Alexandria, second and third century Christian authors. And Clement was a Greek. We don't know where he came from, probably from Athens, but it's not sure. And he spent, let's say, about 10, 15 years in Alexandria, and he wrote a lot. He was a philosopher, but very much also indebted to the Greek literature. So he has thousands of quotations from everywhere. But one of the main things also that he had was quotations from his Jewish writers of Alexandria of an earlier date, about 150 years before his time. He lived from 150 to 220. And so he quoted a lot from Philo of Alexandria, a Jewish author, who also wrote a lot, and we have almost 75% of his works. That. So I did so studied and did my dissertation on the correspondence between Philo and Clement, and how Clement quoted him, how he changed the quotations, what his intentions were. I learned that Clement quoted Philo a lot, but what his purpose was, was not so clear. So uh, I was not the, the first one who had thought of this, sort of where people had said, well, Clement is mostly indebted because of the theory of the Logos, uh, the word of God that created the world, etc. And then another scholar who would speak about the same relation said, well, he was very indebted to Philo, except for the logos. <laughs> so there were really contrasting ideas about that relationship. So what I tried to do was very simply, a simple comparison between the text. So to see what kind of text Clement had quoted, how he had quoted it, what he had cut out, what he had changed. And then I made a numerical so sort of statistical comparison, and that was actually quite revealing. So it turned out, in my opinion, that Clement of Alexandria knew enough Greek philosophy from his own education to learn that from Philo. Philo was also in the, very indebted to Platonic philosophy. But he did not have a Christian education, so he learned a lot about Philo's interpretation of the Bible and storytelling. So that, those were the actually pieces that he needed himself, plus other thoughts as well. Philo had brought ancient philosophy together with biblical interpretation, and that was the other segment that was very important. So this is really interesting because these are the early days of Christianity. I mean, is it fair to ask what kind of impact did that have on early Christianity? Like, did it change something or did it just influence Christian uh, yeah. views of that period? I think so. I think it it made it easier also 
for, let's say, the educated classes to accept some of the strange things that were said, let's say, either in the Hebrew Bible or in the New Testament. And the Bible was primarily the Hebrew Bible for those mm. early Christians. Mm-hmm. The New Testament, it was there, but they really based their, their stories and, and, and a lot of the interpretation on the Hebrew Bible. I think it was very important to make that bridge between the culture of the day Mm-hmm. and the philosophy of the day, and to to explain that in that day's language. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is an, something in Christianity that has gone on since then ever, actually, mm. in, in our times as well. We have festivities that are totally not Christian in, in origin. Yeah. And, uh, so, such as so, what? Christmas, uh, the Christmas tree. <laughs> yeah. So what's the origin of the Christmas tree? I don't know, actually, but oh, it, it's probably more Northern European. Hmm. But uh, I also want to say, so all these stories that are hard to explain, mm-hmm. they allegorized. And that was another big part of the Alexandrian tradition. The story of Sarah and Hagar. So Sarah is the wife of Abraham, and ah. Hagar is a female servant. Mm-hmm. And Sarah cannot get children, so he gets a child with Hagar. Mm. And then Sarah becomes jealous. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Philo says, well, that's the story. If we only take the story, it's just two women arguing and being jealous in the backyard. You have to allegorize. So Sarah mm-hmm. becomes wisdom, mm-hmm. and Hagar is the preparation to wisdom. So preparatory studies, schooling, etc. And then finally you come to the, the real thing, wisdom. So that kind of thing. There are a lot of stories in the Bible that are very hard to explain and that belong to the culture of that time, or various times also. I mean, it's, I don't know, a thousand-year history anyway. And the interesting thing is already in antiquity, the Greeks also had that problem or the uh, the philosophers, because you had all these stories of Homer and in the Iliad and Odysseus. Yeah. So already in Roman times and philosophy, they tried to allegorize those stories also in mm. those terms. Uh, oh, and so I think that the Jewish Greeks and the Christians got it from there or were influenced. But then there was another stream. So in Alexandria, they did a lot of that. And, but in Antioch, another capital of the ancient world, they wanted to have a more literal interpretation of the Bible. And that's basically a problem of what we call hermeneutics that is still going on. You have people who are very literal-minded and want to have every letter explained at face value. It's interesting. I mean, we're still contending with those kinds of issues with our constitution, for instance. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's interesting to look back in our history and see that this has been a part of the human condition for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and and times change and and social situations change, but people do not change very much. Yes, no, they don't. (laughs) To come back to that that village experience, so I mean, I was 25 or so, or when when I started, 26, and uh, and a woman in in that position, mm-hmm. so so you learn a lot, and mm-hmm. uh, it was very important for the rest of my life, I think, to see people as they are. They were farmers, and they had their 
problems and and so mm-hmm. i mean you learn a lot of other situations i think it's important in life yeah. to to adapt and also to see a little bit behind the status of people <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely and, uh, and, uh, well and i would imagine as a as a faith leader in that community you have you're exposed to lots of of different kinds, right? Of- and they basically were a religious for 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 centuries. There, we had to sort of get through that and bring more spirituality in the situation. But it was not so easy. Okay. I remember that. So I had spent the whole night on my sermon, and I would come at ten o'clock, and the organ would play, and the main farmer of the board, where I sit in the first row. As soon as I opened my mouth, they all fell asleep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, they were very friendly, but they had been up since three o'clock. Yeah, right. With cows and calves and yeah. whatnot. Tell me more about getting your PhD throughout all of this. Yeah, I did my PhD. I know I, I got an, uh, actually an, a job as a research professor at a Catholic university in Holland. <laughs> they had an, an, a position for a couple of years, so I got that. I didn't have to teach. I just had to show up once mm-hmm. a week mm-hmm. and in the east of the country, so I did that and then came back. And then I wrote my dissertation, which was published. And in Holland, you have to publish your dissertation. It has to be accepted by for a commercial edition also i got some money i wrote some foundations and at that time i was divorced and needed some money to pay the the publisher and i got so much money that i had too too much (laughs) nice problem to have my children said well you just give a big party or so but i didn't want to do that <laughs> At any rate, so I was very lucky that that Brill published my dissertation, and yeah. so that gave me a sort of a head start. And then I remarried, but not right away. I met my American husband in 1982, and we dated for six years back and forth to Boston and where I lived. But when I was here in in the United States, I wanted to study. So I wrote the librarian of the Divinity School of the Library at Harvard and Maria Grossman, and she granted me access. And I had a great time here. I really loved the library. I still do. I think yeah. it's the best part of Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> but you're not biased at all. Um, no, wait, so, no, so tell me, where did you meet your husband? We met in Rome. I was there for a postdoc in Rome for a semester. He also had a a research break, I think, and yeah, we met there. He is an art historian, archaeologist, and he worked at the Museum of Fine Arts, where he has worked also for 29 years or so. He is retired now. He was head of the classical department, Greek and Rome. And then we figured out how to manage our relationship. And I came uh, in 1987 here. We married in 1988. Of course, I came here, as we call in Dutch, on the bonne foi, on good faith, yeah. <laughs> basically. <laughs> it was New Testament professor Helmut Kuster here at Harvard Divinity School who liked my dissertation, and he offered me a, a part-time job for a teaching advanced Greek. So, and that went on and off, and in the end, I taught four courses. 
and this was through the divinity school and, and explain the significance of Greek. We have people who study church history, so they have to read text, mostly Latin, but also Greek. And then we have New Testament students who need to learn much more than the New Testament. So they really need to read fairly difficult Greek, like Philo and Origen and Eusebius and so And I'm, I'm very impressed with their success, actually, because most of them didn't have any Greek before. So in three years, we had a program for three years, and they've come to the upper levels then, hmm. if they study, of course. I had a lot of Korean students who had even a harder time because also yeah. the Engl- English uh, is, is not easy. And, but they work very hard and they were very good at it. Latin and Greek are not the only language. We have a lot of Semitic languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, Syriac, Arabic itself. Also, we teach that. Plus the fact that at Harvard you can also do Armenian there are mm. lots of texts, uh, early Christian and Jewish texts in Armenian, hmm. and and then Coptic, which is an Egyptian language, uh, African wow. language. You and your husband have many common interests, and so you have worked together on some projects. So your husband, he specializes in Greek and Roman art history and archaeology, and as you said, he was the curator of the art and ancient world at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. Tell me a little bit about your collaborations with him and the work you've produced together. He drew me into some of his work at an early stage when they had an inscription they wanted to have some knowledge about (laughs) not that I knew so much about Greek inscriptions but at least I did the Greek language so one year I didn't teach at Harvard but in Paris I was invited to teach at the École Pratique des Autres in Paris for in 1991 and I met a lot of people there one was an epigraphist And so whenever I could not figure it out, or I I was uncertain, or I couldn't figure it out at all, (laughs) I asked him, and he taught me a lot. And in the end, we did publications together. Hmm. So that's how I started with a little bit of epigraphy. And I've done other things in epigraphy since. And then my husband also, in our free time and our holidays, basically, did a big project on marble research. He had done his dissertation on capitals, those things that you see on columns, and the special kinds of capitals. So if you... Sort of the ornate parts of the columns on the top. Yeah, Doric, Corinthian, uh, Tuscan, whatnot. And then if you need to know any detail, ask him. uh, (laughs) I'll keep that in mind. (laughs) But also the working museum was a lot about marble. They had some problems about the identification of marble. So he started to collaborate with a group of scientists, uh, chemists, biologists, geologists. And then, so there is a group that's called Asmosia, study of ancient marbles and other stones. Mm. In Roman times, particularly, a lot of marble was imported into Rome. And these were big projects. The emperor owned some of those quarries where they wanted to have the marble come from for their projects in Rome. And so now to know where the marble came from 
That's it's really an interesting question and how those trade routes were going and which places in Asia Minor and modern day Turkey. And there are scientific methods with isotopes and all kinds of other methods to define that, to map that out. For example, in Rome, you have a lot of statues. If you have ever been to a museum in Rome, and they're all white. And of course, in Italy, you have the quarries of Carrara, very famous and already used for a long time in Roman times. But a couple of friends from this group of ours found out recently, actually a couple of years ago only, that a lot of the white marble did not come from Carrara, but from an unknown place in Turkey. Wow. And so they went together with a Turkish archaeologist and a geologist also, a professor in Izmir, And they discovered this totally new quarry. So they can scientifically prove that the marble came from because they can discriminate the elements. And so now it has a big uproar in the archaeological world in Rome because people don't want to believe that. Interesting. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Because for centuries they have thought it was Karamar, it's fine grain, and mm-hmm. it has a special features which actually is corresponding with the fine grain marble of this new place, which hmm. is called Gugtepe. Nobody ever heard of that. Hmm. And then there are minor discoveries. My husband was interested in the marble from the island of Thassos hmm. in the northern an island near Thessaloniki. And hmm. there are quarries there, uh, very white marble. And one of those marbles is from Cape Rathi, is a dolomitic marble. Mm. All the other marbles are basically calcitic. Mm-hmm. And so so he did a whole study all over the Mediterranean, even in North Africa, to figure out what the trade routes were and where these capitals were and other sculptures were came from. Yeah, it's just so interesting how that kind of archaeology teaches you so much about ancient commerce and how cultures were overlapping and exchanging culture during that time period. If you go to Ostia, there's a whole outside display of marbles that were Mm. dragged up from the Tiber River because that's where the shipments came in or one of the places. So there you can can see all the colored marbles. Colored marbles, of course, are easier to distinguish because you can just do it by sight. You can do it by sight also of white marbles a lot. In the 30 years that I have helped him, or or maybe 40 years now, (laughs) we would go to a museum, let's say in Munich, and we would look by eye what we thought was our Thasian marble, and later on have it tested being 95% correct. Wow. So, So you can train your eyes, and Greek art historians also knew how to do that by eye, but it's better to be certain and do the test. One of the other projects you and your husband worked on was to create a pottery exhibit at the Divinity right. School Library. So tell me about that and what did you hope to convey through the exhibit? Uh, my husband had one lamp when we met that he bought in the 60s or 70s, an, an early Christian lamp with a chalice and two birds on the side. And that's called an African red slip lamp. They kind of look like flat 
kettles almost, right? <laughs> yeah, this this particular kind, but there are all kinds of lamps. Okay, okay. Uh, have certain Hellenistic types, they look different from Roman lamps. But North Africa had a big explosion of pottery, almost on the industrial scale in the 3rd, 4th, and 5th centuries. Not only of lamps, but also of plates, bowls, and also of jugs. And so those were actually the most common, the, what we call the closed wares. So there are a number of ateliers in North Africa that produce these things. Before just telling you about the exhibition, we found out that the exportation of these wares was everywhere in the ancient world, from Roman Britain to the Black Sea to in Odessa. In the museum, we saw a ARS plate that was excavated in that area. So wow. it's really interesting. So there were big landowners of really important Roman landowners who owned these pottery farms, basically, the kilns, and then exported it. So there is one particular period that I like very much, and that is the 4th and 5th century, in which the production of these lamps and the imagery changes. So in the earlier phase, you have all kinds of Greek gods, Zeus and Aphrodite or Venus and Heracles and all these traditional images. And then at the same time, you start to get... Old Testament scenes, Hebrew Bible scenes, like the sacrifice of Isaac or the three Hebrews in the fire. And they came from the same pottery atelier. That means that these ateliers farmed out, so to speak, to their clientele. And some were Christian and others were something else. There are also Jewish lamps with menorahs of that time. So it's really interesting. So the same kind of idea that I had with my Clement of Alexandria. So how does this whole Greek philosophical Jewish background come into early Christianity? Same idea is there with the pottery. And my husband pointed out this morning, actually, that we were the first ever ARS exhibit in history. Huh. Oh, wow. <laughs> in the Divinity School. Yeah. That's so neat. And when was this? <laughs> this was in 2001. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so wonderful. the library just uh, got renovated and there's a little display area and we had it there. And we wrote also a catalog. And then the show traveled to the Johnson Library in Austin, Texas, and also to New Haven. And now we are sort of specialists yeah. <laughs> in the imagery of this pottery. Well, we are amateurs, of course, but then you become known. It's interesting because this exhibition that you put together, am I correct in saying that this is kind of the way that you connected with what was then called the Semitic Museum, but is now known as the Harvard Museum of the Ancient Near East? Right. Tell me how that happened. Uh, yes, because Larry Steger and Joe Green had done excavations in Carthage. Mm -hmm. Joe Green, so, by the way, we've we've done an episode with Joe Green. Right, a wonderful ex yes. episode with Joe. And yes. unfortunately, he's retired he's now. So <laughs> we don't see him that often anymore. <laughs> but anyway, so and Joe was immediately in for it. And so for this exhibition, we had materials from 
museum, but not from the MFA, just from the Semitic Museum and from some private collections in the air, some Harvard professors, etc., and other people who liked the idea. It was a big organization for me. I had never done an exhibition. John, of course, had done many. But here we had, he always had a staff to write the labels and do things and hammer things in. But here we had to do it ourselves. <laughs> I remember before the exhibition opened, we were still going with hammers and nails. <laughs> I know that well. <laughs> but it was, we had a reception and, and it was really an, a wonderful occasion actually for everyone. Also, I did a lot of publications we did together and also alone on the imagery and how it's connected with text. So I was always interested to see if a certain interpretation on an image could be found in a text. So the exhibition was called Light from the Age of Augustine. But unfortunately, Augustine had very little interest in, <laughs> in pottery. <laughs> you can learn lots from Augustine, but not about pottery. <laughs> These days, you work in the collections of the Harvard Museum of the Ancient Near East, or H-Main, as we call it, and it's a job that you've taken up in retirement. Tell me a bit about that work. After retirement, I said to Joe, so we, we had this connection via the, the show, and later on, Joe also came a couple of times into my classes to explain a little bit about objects and linguistic details, etc. So it was fun. After we met each other at the parking lot and Joe said, do you have a picture of that and that lamp? I need some pictures. Uh, so sure, I'll do that. That was already before I retired. And then I thought, well, this would be wonderful to do after retirement to, uh, to help the collection, study the collection. And so I told him, uh, would you like me to come in for certain projects? And uh, so he took that. And already while I was still working, I went one morning or one afternoon a week to help them out. So I did this Nuzi collection from the excavation in Iraq, all the medals. I did two years of medal work and then a couple of years of beads. And so you take the pictures, you, you label it, and they are going to put it online eventually. But it's all now recorded. And so the last two or three years, I've been there for six or seven years now, I have worked with my colleague on the coins. It's a work of love, I should say, because if you look at the coin collection at the MFA, it's all glittering and beautiful and beautifully <laughs> displayed and the best examples possible. Well, in Smith we have the worst examples possible. <laughs> it's interesting because some I excavated and it's important for dating and all of that. Describe this coin project. I think one of the interesting things is you're working with a retired radiologist who just happens to be an expert in ancient coinage. Yeah, he also has uh, a PhD his... in coinage, numismatic, so he's a real pro. <laughs> and, and what's his name? And Marvin Kushnet. So he has a PhD in ancient coinage. Wow, what an impressive fellow. Tell me a little bit about what do ancient coins tell you? Well, they tell you the date 
They tell you where they come from. They tell you the propaganda of the rulers. Because of the uh, art on the coinage? Yeah, right, and how macho these people look (laughs) or not. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I'm not a specialist per se, but I've seen many coins now from the Levant particularly, so because some of the collections are of people who work there and Mm. they just bought them on the market probably. So they are not so interesting in a way because they are not excavated. So it's Mm. much more interesting if you have now working at the moment on excavated coins from Samaria in an excavation. So if you see a lot of, let's say, coins from Alexandria of the Ptolemaic period, then you can also determine that that was an important period in the settlement where they were excavated. But there are also people who are interested in the beauty of a coin, and I can see also why. It gives you a little insight in the ancient world that you don't find in literature. And also, coins are very important, as I understand, but this is totally not my field. They are very important for portraiture. So if you have a marble portrait of an emperor or an empress, then you can go to the coins and see if that particular image also fits the coinage. And so that is very important, actually. So it's a broad field of expertise. The British Museum has endless catalogs Mm. of these coins. And so they are sort of the basis to identify. But Marvin and I are sitting there sometimes for hours to see (laughs) what it is. And he weighs them, sometimes very easy, and sometimes it's very difficult. Mm. Yeah, It's very interesting how you've been able to combine your theoretical work with material culture. How do you connect your theoretical work with material culture? And why is it important to do that? Well, it's a very difficult question, actually. (laughs) My theoretical work is basically literature. Literature reflects a reality, historical reality, uh, social reality. And I think that's why it's important to, to read and to be interested in what's going on in your own life, but also in history. And I think I learn a lot from history. Of course, these these times are very different. Social structures are very different. But but there are a number of things that do not change. And I love to learn. I'm very inquisitive also. So I love to learn. And don't take everything at face value. Just try to sort of go a little bit farther. Well, I would think that your theoretical work through literature, you know, someone writes literature. So it's sort of a peek into their brains. But the material culture, the objects that are preserved from a time are a peek into the larger society, right? So being able to connect the two, I would imagine. Yeah, you're you're right, because the literature that we have mostly is of males, (laughs) to some females, and mostly of higher echelon of society. So you don't learn... But another thing, for example, inscriptions, also mostly from a higher part of society, but then there are inscriptions of, for example, the catacombs. I would make a little pitch for the catacomb society. I have been president of the 
International oh, wow. Catacomb Society. Oh my goodness! I'm <laughs> <laughs> gonna have to look into that. That sounds look interesting. Up. We have a beautiful website, International yeah. Catacomb Society, wow. founded by a Jewish lady from Boston. So catacombs have inscriptions of regular people, and hmm. so, so indeed that gives you another insight. Although they couldn't write themselves, probably, so they had someone to do mm. it. It's very hard to connect the dots. I'm just very interested in all of it. Annevies Vandenhoek, I really appreciate you being here. This has been so much fun. And I thank you very much for having me. HMSC Connects podcast was produced by me, Jennifer Berglund, and the Harvard Museums of Science and Culture. Special thanks to the Harvard Museum of the Ancient Near East and to Annavise Vandenhoek for her wisdom and expertise. And thank you so much for listening. If you like today's podcast, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you in a couple of weeks.